Hello, my name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, who is the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. We welcome you to the VMAS podcast. This is episode two for the year of 2020 in our brand new reading plan. This month, we've been going through the book of Isaiah. Um, just a couple weeks ago, Pastor David had a great discussion with Dr. Peter Gentry on the book of Isaiah. You can find that online at our website, obc.org, under podcast. Today, we'll be looking deeper into Isaiah and uh, to see what we can find and what we can discuss and what we can learn about how to read Isaiah and just in general, how to read the Bible better. This morning, as we begin our discussion on Isaiah, uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, what is the main point of this book? Yeah, so sometimes people have referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel, hmm. right? So we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the four gospels, actually one gospel in four different ways. Right, yeah. Um, but Isaiah has gotten uh, the title of the fifth gospel because of just how much it speaks about salvation. Hmm. Uh, it's a book that you know identifies the sin of Israel and their time and place, certainly in the days of Isaiah in the 8th century. Uh, but it provides all sorts of promises for salvation. And so uh, we see that theme running throughout. So I think the main message um, could be put under two categories of the city under judgment and the city of salvation. Right. And so we see that contrast between um, Jerusalem under God's judgment because of their sin and the promise on the other side of that of salvation. Uh, so in those ways, uh, we see a main message of salvation through judgment. So this book was challenging for me, mostly because of the literary style. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand it and trying to find how, um, when Isaiah is speaking to the leadership of Jerusalem mm -hmm. and trying to, trying to understand how uh, the judgment and hope aspects work. Yep. You know, so as I read it, and actually I think the discussion that um, you had with Peter Gentry, Dr. Mm -hmm. Peter Gentry, helped me to understand it better because when I went back to it after the discussion, yeah. um, it made more sense. So... <laughs> Can believe that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Isaiah is an amazing book, right. um, but it's really challenging to read the book without a map. Yes. Right? When you have a map of thinking through, okay, where are we in the book? I mean, 66 chapters mm. makes Isaiah more difficult than Philippians right. or Mark. Yeah. Right? So just, you know, it's a long place. And then if you start in chapter 1, you know, you, you begin to find some verses that we're familiar with. Right, so we have the Isaiah seven fourteen, so that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously Matthew picks that up and explains that in relationship to Jesus, and we have other passages that we read at Christmas time that you know light has come into the darkness and promise of a son of Jesse and in, in chapter eleven, and you know you have places of, of great hope, and of course you know the the throne room scene right, in yeah. Isaiah six. So you read through the first chapter, twelve chapters, like okay, this makes sense, but there's also some challenges that are in the chapters, right. And then you get to chapters 13 through 27. Yeah. And, and I found that's just one of the hardest places to understand. And you have judgment after judgment after judgment on these nations that you may or may not know a lot about. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it does take some work uh, to be able to see where you are. Uh, so, And as you read through that, I mean, what was most challenging about just reading chapter after chapter, uh, you know, and seeing some of those things or not seeing some of those things that were in there? So when I first read it, even though there's aspects of hope, um, which mm -hmm. typically uh, when I was when I was reading it more so started at uh, chapter 40. But when I was reading it, it just felt like a, a dirge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it felt it felt heavy. Yeah. As Isaiah was talking to the leaders of um, Jerusalem and Judah and talking about how 
their sins were going to be judged mm-hmm. by Babylon and the Assyrians yeah. or the use of, ba- of Babylon and the Assyrians, yeah. I should say. I originally just didn't see any hope. And at first, I didn't understand how the aspect of hope would even read into this. But then, mm-hmm. as like you said, mm-hmm. as we got further into the book and we, and we saw the prophecy about the Savior coming through the line of David, mm-hmm. obviously that's a very hopeful thing. Just the fact that we that we know that there's going to be a savior, or that they knew That's right. uh, was going to be a savior, is very hopeful. I feel like now, coming from the other end of it, it's harder to say what my struggles were mm-hmm. because I've had you know the opportunity to hear uh, uh, Doctor Gentry's mm-hmm. uh, explanations of Isaiah. Sure, sure. So I think that my my mind is is uh, been helped yeah. <laughs> to understand and grasp. The book of Isaiah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why even this reading plan of just kind of reading together community matters so much. Right, yeah. Right. I think there is a misunderstanding that people have that if I just have my Bible and the Holy Spirit Mm. and me, I'll be sufficient. And yet the scripture tells us that we need teachers. We need Mm -hmm. those who've gone before us to help us to understand these things. Uh, That we're not created to read the Bible alone and come up with our own interpretations. You can do that and you'll come up with some really crazy stuff. Yeah. Right. But to be able to see, okay, uh, those who know Hebrew poetry, Mm -hmm. those who know the history better than I do, I can learn from them. And then it makes more sense. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's often a uh, inductive Bible study method that says, okay, go read the Bible on your own Mm -hmm. and then use commentators. Right. Yeah. There's something to that. But there's also a place in a book that's just really foreign to us to go read some of the the history and the commentators first Mm -hmm. and say, this is what is there. And then at the end of the day, the scriptures are the authority. Of course to adjudicate according to what scripture reveals but it can be helpful and so you know certainly i felt that way um in reading isaiah and beginning to see okay this is what these you know this these seven cycles that you see in the book right right where in chapter two you come to zion Mm -hmm. right and you see that god is bringing restoration to those people who are under really a uh, a lawsuit from god in chapter (laughs) one yes and then the same thing happens again in chapters two through four, and you come to Zion, and the nations are once again pouring in and finding light there. And then again, the judgment begins in chapter five, and then finally in chapter twelve, we once again see salvation that is springing forth from Zion. And in chapters seven, nine, and eleven, we see this promise of a, a son who will be born. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see this this one who the, the government will be on his shoulders, mm. uh, that he will be righteous and bring forth peace. And then we see in chapter 11 that it will be a son of Jesse and the indication that it will be a, a new David that is coming that brings that about. And then, then it gets longer, right? Mm-hmm. Chapter 13 through 27, uh, we see, oh man, there's all these judgments that are there. But in the midst of it, there are promises of hope. Right. And it can be hard at times to see that because it's a lot of darkness and then a flicker of light. A lot more darkness and then a flicker of light. But just listen to a few of these verses that you find, for instance, in Isaiah 14, verse 32. Right? It says, What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. Mm. So you have that at the, the beginning of just this judgment narrative upon Babylon, but then there's this flicker of hope that is there. And then there are other judgments on other nations around uh, Jerusalem at this time. And Isaiah 16.5 says, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. 
So this picks up some of those promises earlier in chapter yeah. 7 and 9 and 11, and it continues to just flicker light. And you see this again in Isaiah 17, verse 7. It says, In that day man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. Right, That was the whole problem of idolatry that Israel had. And he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. And so again, these flickers of light, and so you get to Isaiah 19, mm-hmm. and there's this amazing promise that from Assyria to Egypt, there will run a highway, and that actually Jerusalem or Israel will be third. Right. As Assyria and Egypt and Israel all worship the same God mm. in that moment, which is actually not even going to be fulfilled in any part of the Old Testament. Right, yeah. right? This is looking to a day into the future that is now come in Christ, where those from multiple nations come together and worship the same God. Right. So it's helpful uh, to see the way that in the beginning, okay, lots of judgment, but moving towards salvation. Mm. Lots of darkness, but flickers of light that will ultimately lead to the light. And for those who hang on in Isaiah, man, what a glorious vision by the end of the book. Yeah. It's so easy to read the book and say that the Jews were very uh, fickle or that Mm. they were um, just like, wow, why why would they keep doing that? But then I see myself in it. Yeah, Yeah, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've made the same mistakes over and over again. And a, a lot of things that, you know, I've overcome in my life, I had to overcome through fasting and prayer, not through mm-hmm. my own, just I'm going to um, change. You yeah. know, I had to have, I really had to, to yeah. uh, rely on the Holy Spirit. But so many times we Christians, we we want to change or, or we want to do something. And, you know, we obviously we deal with strongholds and habits. And a big thing about idols is that, so many of us worship idols today, whether mm-hmm. it's sports or yeah. TV shows or our partners or yeah. our abilities. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, we so we have to be careful in our judging of them because yeah. we are are the same people who who need the same salvation yeah. that they needed. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to think about. I mean, the very end of First John chapter five, verse twenty, the very last verse is, you know, little children do not, you know, serve idols. Right. Yeah. And idolatry is still something that we face today. Uh, I think it's important to see some of the distinctions as well between Israel and ourselves. Right. Right. So the commands that they had, the law that they had, was still external mm. to them. Right. Right. So under the old covenant, one of the things that God is doing is to show the weakness of that law. Right. So he could certainly say, have no other gods before me, make no other graven images. And yet Israel kept doing it. Right. Yeah. What's really interesting is that Israel never made up their own idols. They always went to the idols of the nations mm. around them. Right? Yeah, that is true. So they, they had their God, and then they would add to that other gods. Mm-hmm. I remember being in Israel in 2005, and there was this um, kind of New Age festival that was going on there. Uh, and so we went to share the gospel with whoever would listen. Uh, but I remember there was this opening ceremony, so to speak, and the lady was reading from the Psalter, was reading from the Psalms in Hebrew, and then calling the four winds to come at the same oh, time. Wow. So there's this incredible syncretism that is there, even to this day. Mm. Uh, there was syncretism in their day. Um, but here's the thing that's so helpful to see, is that the desires that we have uh, to walk in holiness are internal to us. The Holy mm-hmm. Spirit has been given to us. So one of the things that we see over the course of uh, Isaiah is this future promise of a new covenant. Right. Uh, and like, for instance, Isaiah fifty four thirteen says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Mm-hmm. That's something that Israel did not have. 
right? In Israel, you had some who knew the Lord and others who did not. Right. But today, the new covenant, everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we don't need teachers, and it doesn't mean that we don't need to learn from one another. Right. But there's this internal desire to know the things of God that happens when the Spirit is poured out and we are given new life. So I think it's important to remember that just as Israel struggled with idols, so do we, mm -hmm. but there is a power and there is a reality in the new covenant that is greater today. So we shouldn't say that we're exactly like them. Right. Uh, praise be to God. He's given us his spirit to walk in a new way. Amen. So who is this man, Isaiah, and what do we know about him? Yeah, so Isaiah uh, is identified in his call um, in chapter 6. Right, it's interesting, uh, the book of Jeremiah will begin with God calling Jeremiah to come and to serve him. We don't get that until chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. Uh, we know he's the son of Amos, uh, Amos, uh, A-M-O-Z, not Amos. Um, that may have been um, a, a brother uh, to Uzziah. Uh, so it's possible and likely the tradition was held that Isaiah was in the royal family. He certainly knew Jerusalem. It's mm -hmm. striking that in chapter 7, he has access to the king. Mm. So there's good likelihood that he was close to, if not a part of the royal family. Right. Uh, and yet God's call upon him uh, was to come and proclaim a very hard message uh, to the people of Israel. Right. It's interesting in chapter 5, there are six statements of woe. Right, So, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Mm -hmm. Six of them. Then there's a seventh woe, and it shows up in chapter 6. Right When Isaiah is brought into the presence of God, he sees his own wickedness, that he is a people of unclean lips. He mm -hmm. has unclean lips. And wait, he's the prophet? Right. And he has unclean lips? Yeah. And so, of course, God's mercy is seen there that, a, that an angel takes you know, a coal from the altar and singes his lips and purifies his lips. Mm -hmm. um, but so he's the prophet called by God. He's one who's not perfect in of himself. He, mm -hmm. too, needs the mercy of God to forgive him, to purify him. But then he's called in Isaiah 6 to go and to, to preach to his um, the people in Jerusalem uh, who will have eyes but not see and ears but not hear. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't see the fruitfulness of his ministry in his lifetime, but we see his faithfulness. Yeah. Right? And this is where perhaps um, a First Peter 1 can be helpful, where it says that the prophets learned that they were not serving their own generation, but they're serving future generations. So many of the things that Isaiah is saying and seeing uh, are so important for future generations. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, as a prophet, he is not only proclaiming things to his own people's own day as Assyria is coming and threatening Jerusalem, but also Babylon. Right? He's writing about things like Cyrus. Cyrus is the, the Persian king who will come some hundred years after Isaiah. Uh, and he's named in Isaiah 45, verse 1, which makes all the liberal scholars think, oh, see, it's uh, not Isaiah who's writing this. Right, yeah. But if God is giving him the vision to be able to see these things and to say these things, there's no reason why it's not Isaiah speaking of some future uh, king that is to come. So I think those are a few of the things uh, that we learn. Uh, and above all, I mean, among all the prophets, he may have some of those glorious visions of, of who God is. So one of the things I noticed um, as I read the book of Isaiah is that there were so many verses that I've heard either cherry picked mm -hmm. um, because they are mentioned or 
or uh, referred to in the New Testament, yeah. or they're being used out of context to preach a, a different message. Sure. But how different it is to read them in context mm-hmm. with the entirety of Isaiah. Sure. Um, so I'm going to pick out one of those verses. We're going to look at uh, 714. Yep. And where we're talking about the promise of, of a virgin having a son. Mm. How should we understand this? Yeah, so there have been different ways of interpreting Isaiah 7.14, right? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is the sign that God gave to Ahaz. Ahaz was offered a sign. Right. Uh, he refused it. And so God says, here's the sign that you're going to have. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And, of course, we know this so well because of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Right? Matthew 1 takes this verse and applies it to the birth of Christ, yes. right? which is obviously the, the final goal there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm persuaded that we can't jump over Isaiah 8 mm-hmm. to just go all the way to that uh, word. It's not as though Isaiah 7.14 is a singular prediction put into a capsule hidden away by itself, but Mm -hmm. rather um, one of the things that is true is that Isaiah, for him to be recognized as a true prophet, he'll have to make prophecies in his own day that are recognized. I think one way that happens is actually in Isaiah 8. Um, And we may see this or we may not, but if we keep reading Isaiah 8, the the threat of judgment um, or the threat of the Assyrians coming to Jerusalem shows up. Right. right, and so here's here's what we find, right? As it begins to speak about the son who's going to be born, because interestingly, a, a son is promised um, to the virgin, and then in chapter eight, Isaiah's wife uh, becomes pregnant, and mm-hmm. she has a son. Right, right, um, and of course. Uh, through the natural means, we're not thinking of a virgin the way that Mary was a virgin, mm-hmm. but certainly a young woman who's known as a prophetess. And and here's what we find. Verse 5 begins to read in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 8. The Lord spoke to me again, because his people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all of his glory, and it will rise over all of its channels and go over all of its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Mm. Right? There's the word, God with us. Right? His name, mm. Isaiah 7.14 says, is God with us. Right. So if you're just reading this in context, you have to read those together and say, oh, I should put two and two together and see how these two things connect. This language of um, judgment waters coming to the neck of Judah is that Assyria would come to the very gates of Jerusalem but not enter in. We see the historical events of this in chapters 36 through 39, right? But here we see God with us is not God with us to save, but God with us to judge, Mm. right? There's a judgment that is coming, and yet there will be a measure of salvation that comes because God will not allow these waters to overflow Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a measure of of judgment that is here, right? Here's what it says in verse 9 and 10, and we'll actually see Emmanuel a second time. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Mm. God is with us, Emmanuel. So there again, we see that language being used. So I'm persuaded that the way we read Isaiah 7.14 is that it is fulfilled initially in the days of Isaiah and the birth of his son, Mashiach. 
hashbaz, mm-hmm. mouthful. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it has a greater fulfillment in the greater son to come in the birth of Jesus. Right. Uh, and in this way, we can see how God is using typology. He is actually implementing types in the Old Testament to show their fulfillment in Christ. In fact, the language of fulfillment that we find in, in Matthew's gospel is not something of prediction usually. Often it is more of uh, a promise or even a pattern in the Old Testament that is then fulfilled in the days of Jesus Christ. Well, so I think that helps us to read Isaiah on its own terms and then to read Isaiah in the larger um, corpus of the whole Bible. Right. So we talked about the judgments. Yeah. So why are there so many judgments in Isaiah 13 through 27? Yeah, again, the the wickedness of Israel and the nations around them, Mm -hmm. uh, God is bringing judgment, right? So I think one thing that we need to see, especially in our day, so this is kind of moving from just the historical context to how do we read this with application. I don't think we do well with judgment. Um, I don't think we do well with the holiness of God. Mm -hmm. We often treat his holiness with great um, levity, right? right? Yeah. There's a very lightweight deity when we think about God. Mm-hmm. So I think personally, as we read this, it should teach us and instruct us just how holy he is right? Yeah. and how God responds to idolatry and sin so that the darkness of sin is felt, the weight of sin is felt, uh, so that when the light of the gospel comes, it really is what we're looking for. There's so many ways that salvation is um, re- um, reappropriated today to talk about material wealth mm. or physical wealth mm-hmm. or uh, Jesus will help me in my personal endeavors. Right. But salvation defined by the Bible is always salvation from sin and condemnation. Right. Yeah. It is salvation from judgment that God rightly has over us because of our wickedness. And so I think just going through the chapters, 13, 14, 15, all the way to 24, we see the consistency of God's judgment upon sin, upon all peoples, including Israel. Mm-hmm. Right, So it goes to all the nations, and then in chapter 22, it focuses on Israel, who he calls the Valley of Vision. We see the irony, almost the sarcasm there. Right, Jerusalem is a city set on a hill, and yeah. he calls it a valley. Yeah, A valley of vision. Like, what kind of vision do you have in a valley? No. Not very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So he's talking about the blindness that mm-hmm. is there. And yet, on the other side of that judgment, there begins to be these incredible promises. Right. In chapters hope. 25, 26, 27, you know, that those whose mind is set on the Lord will have peace. Mm. Right? There's really a way that the entire book of Isaiah is looking for peace. Peace is lost because of sin. Peace is regained when the sin bearer in chapter 53 comes uh, and makes peace by taking chastisement in himself, right? And so chapters 25 through 27, again, bring us to Zion and the hope for those who take refuge in him, uh, promises a refuge that we've seen throughout the chapters from 13 to 24. Why is there four chapters of history in the middle of this book? It's kind of interesting, right? I mean, we go through all these uh, poetic language, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it like shifts gears. Right. And we have the Assyrians um, who are coming to bring judgment, and then this incredible salvation that God brings to Isaiah and Hezekiah at that time. And then uh, Hezekiah, trusting himself after that salvation, after his own life has been spared, he gains 15 more years of his life. Um, the Babylonians come, 
Mm-hmm. And when they come, they see all of his spoils. Mm, they yeah. see all of his wealth. He sets in their heart seeds of, of jealousy and envy there. And we see really the direction going in the forward that there's going to come another judgment that is there. Yeah. Right? Uh, and that not greater judgment, the, the second judgment with Babylon, will be far greater than Assyria. Mm. Right? Really, there are three nations that we can see taking place of judgment in, in uh, Israel's history. Assyria, who comes during the days of the 8th century, 722, is when uh, Assyria drives out all of the inhabitants of the north. And as Dr. Gentry talked about, this came through a series of, of just kind of taking away land and peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, 586 is when the temple is destroyed, when the Babylonians come. They begin in about 609 BC, mm-hmm. and through multiple waves, they export people, it's known as the exile. But then after that, we begin to see that God promises in chapter 45 and following that God will bring his exiled people back into the land. So Mm -hmm. Cyrus will be raised up. He's the king of the Medes and the Persians, and he will come and destroy the Babylonians so they will no longer have their hand on the people of Israel, and he will bring the nation of Israel back into the land. But lo and behold, chapter 48. Verse 22, there is no peace for those who are wicked. Yeah. Right? So you can take the people of Israel back into the land, but you can't change their heart. Yeah. Which is why a greater servant needs to come. The suffering servant comes. In Isaiah 53, we see that he dies in the place of his people, which leads into a new covenant. Chapters 54 and 55 talk about this new covenant. And then this message of hope to all the nations um, and peoples coming into Zion is what 56 through 66 is all about. So how should we understand the servant in, in Isaiah 53? So I think it's important to see that chapter 41 mm-hmm. begins the language of servant. Yeah. And it's developed all the way through until chapter 53. Um, there'll be a blog post that we put up about this, but many places in those chapters, the servant of the Lord is described as the nation of Israel. And there's some who think that Isaiah 53, when it speaks of the servant, is also the nation of Israel, even though it's spoken of in individual terms. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's right. Uh, I think what we see is that Israel is supposed to be the servant of the Lord, and you have Uh, previous mentions of Isaiah as God's servant and David as God's servant. So you have individual and and corporate language for servant. Mm -hmm. They all fail, right? I mean, Isaiah Mm -hmm. is faithful in in writing the things that he does here, but he too is not without sin, as we talked about. But we see that the nation of Israel fails to be a witness of God's glory to the nations, and therefore they're sent into exile. And what is needed to bring them back from exile is a greater servant who will be perfectly obedient to God, who will begin again uh, the work of God. And we see this beginning in chapter 51 as it goes back to Abraham and that he was one man. And so God can begin again with one man, a new Israel that is taking place here. But strikingly, this one servant comes, is faithful to God. He dies in their place for their sin. And as Isaiah 53 speaks of, when he is raised again, he is raised with many. Mm. He dies alone but he is raised with many. He dies for the sins of his people, and then his posterity is given to him in his resurrection. And what's glorious about this is that the rest of Isaiah, after the single servant is mentioned, there's no longer a mention of a single servant after Isaiah 53. Mm. Thereafter, 
it's always servants in the plural. Mm, right? I didn't notice so that. So 12 times after that, beginning in chapter 54, and then another 11 times from chapter 56 to the end, we see all these mentions of plural servants. Who are they? <coughs> They're the people who Jesus dies for, right? Wow. So we're, we're going to the end of the story. Yeah. But the true servant, Jesus Christ, suffers in the place of his people. They become servants with him, or to use the language at the end of the book, we see that they are priests and Levites gathered from all the nations brought into this new people that Israel, excuse me, that, that Jesus is making by his death and resurrection. See, this is another reason why discussion between brothers and sisters in Christ yeah. is so important. Absolutely. Because every time we have a conversation, I, I, without fail, every time we do an episode of VMAs, I learn <laughs> something new or I, get, I gain a new perspective yeah. on something that, even something I may have read many times yeah. before. So yeah. it's just very useful to me. Well, and just at the asking of questions, right? Right, I mean, yeah. As you ask questions, I ask questions, we talk about things like, I've never thought about that before. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. right? And, and to go back to the Bible and to see the, the riches that are there that are gleaned by asking questions and just abiding in the Word. Yeah. So what does it mean in Isaiah 66.20 that priests and Levites will come from the nations? Yeah, so last year we talked about uh, the priests mm-hmm. and the Levites in the in the Pentateuch. Yes. They're all from Aaron. Mm-hmm. They're all from Levi. So it's a crazy thought that you can have holy people from all the nations. Yeah. Right? Who can be brought into the presence of God. At least it would have been to the people of Israel. <laughs> yeah, that's right? right, yeah. But that's what the promise is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, we know this today through the doctrine of the priesthood of believers, that mm-hmm. Jesus Christ has redeemed a people from Israel and all the nations, and he grants access to us to come and to serve in his presence. Right. So language of servants of the Lord, servants in the house of God is priestly language. And, you know, this is what God is doing when he says that you have these servants who are now serving the Lord. Well, it's people from idol-making, idol-worshiping peoples who have been purified by the blood of Christ, Mm. who are now brought to serve him and to worship in the house that he is building. And, of course, we see this in part today as local churches are gathered together. Right, uh, yeah. And that's envisioning what will take place at the end of the age Mm -hmm. when there's a new heavens and a new earth and all the people will be purified in their um, from their sins and in their resurrected bodies and they'll be able to serve in the house of the Lord for eternity. Amen. What's next in the reading plan, and what can listeners expect in the next months ahead? Yeah, good question. So uh, we've read Isaiah in the month of January, Yeah. and it's hard to say, man, i got to move on. There's so much more to keep reading. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but we're going to look at Jeremiah, Okay. right? So Jeremiah is another large uh, prophet, mm-hmm. uh, and just like Isaiah, we'll provide some resources to look at the outline of the book uh, because with all books of the Bible, the authors are not just kind of throwing words down. Right, right? Yeah. The Holy Spirit um, is a spirit of wisdom and understanding and order. He brings order out of chaos. I mean, one of the things that you see even like in Isaiah 32 is that when the Spirit is poured out, he brings life and he brings order. Uh, and so as the Spirit inspired Jeremiah uh, and Isaiah and all the other prophets and apostles, we should anticipate that there is order in the book. Now, Jeremiah... I don't actually know what that order is. Uh, So I'm looking forward to to studying that and learning that as well. And as we learn those things, we will uh, put those up at davidtrock.com and uh, provide some resources to help us read uh, Jeremiah better. Are there any other thoughts about reading Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets? 
I think two things. One, just give yourself time with it, mm. right? Don't anticipate or expect that the first time that you read Isaiah or the second time or the third time uh, that you'll get it. Uh, it takes time. Uh, God has given us a, a book that is not too big, nor is it too little, right. uh, but it is big enough that it takes multiple readings to understand it. Uh, and I'm convinced that God only reveals himself to his people through the time that we spend over years uh, reading the scriptures. That's one thing. Take the time to, to read it without expectations of understanding everything all at once. Right. And then second, read it with, with other people. Yeah. Right. Just as you and I get a chance to have a conversation like this, I mean, we want to be encouraging people to to read the Bible, to ask questions, to be in conversation with one another. Uh, read with, you know, a trusted commentary along the way. Uh, read with different resources that are there. Um, but the idea of reading the Bible isolated as individuals mm. is is foolhardy. Uh, God did not give us the book to read it on our own, uh, but rather he gave us the book and he gifts teachers to help us to understand it. And in the month of uh, February, we look forward to uh, bringing on another trusted teacher to help us think through uh, the book of Jeremiah. I definitely look forward to that. So this concludes our discussion of the book of Isaiah and the 2020 reading plan. As you follow along with the reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to viaemaeus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode.